0: Greetings, everyone. Here I am, not quite fresh as a daisy, but nevertheless very excited to present today's episode to you. I'd like to welcome my new Patreon supporter, Elliot. For those of you who want to contribute to the financial health of this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash countermelody, and you too can make your monthly or yearly donation. Anywhere from $2 a month on up or $25 a year on up will gain you access to all of the wonderful bonus material that I am posting. And I'm expecting quite possibly this weekend to post not just one, but two episodes. Thank you so much for the positive response to last week's Forgotten Broadway episode. Part two of that will follow next week. This week, I have something very different and very special for you. One of my favorite singers can't wait to present him to you. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each, but the primary spotlight will always be on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me. Now, this week's episode. Let me present to you the great American tenor, and might I even go out on a limb and say the greatest countertenor of any nationality ever, Russell Oberlin. I believe all of my listeners know, I too was a countertenor for a good many years. I have not yet done an episode in which I highlighted and featured the work of another countertenor. Last week, I did play a brief excerpt of me singing the Ballad of the Sad Young Man that was as a tribute to my collaborator, the late Lloyd Ariola. And occasionally, I have played myself singing something or other. But I generally shy away from the countertenor voice, Honestly, I find myself being unduly critical of other countertenors, and since it is one of the tenets of this podcast that I'm not going to trash other singers, I find myself often studiously avoiding speaking about or playing the work of other countertenors. But Russell Oberlin is different. On one of my very first episodes, my first Christmas episode, in fact, I played russell's 1952 recording with the robert shaw chorale of the cherry tree carol this was my introduction as a very young child to this magical ethereal otherworldly and dare i say genderless voice and i can think of no better thing to do at this moment than to play you an excerpt from that very recording
1: when joseph was an
0: When I first heard this as a kid, I was five years old, and I don't know how my mother knew this, but she knew that the person singing this was a man and not a woman, and this information just completely blew my mind. I could not believe that a man, a grown man, could make such a sound. I've asked my mother about this, and she simply does not remember any of this. But how would I have known if it was not she that told me? In fact, I remember finding this information out from her and being completely flabbergasted and blown away and fascinated. And from then on... I really did have a fixation on this kind of voice. Now, I didn't always hear countertenor voices that I liked, but this one, oh my God. So for those of you who don't know anything about Russell Oberlin, do let me give you a little background information. He and I share a birthday. He was born October 11th, albeit numerous decades before I was, in Akron, Ohio in the year 1928. And from, I believe it was the age of six, he was appearing in public and singing with his beautiful boy soprano. According to an interview that I found, he once had a library of recordings of his old performances, and unfortunately, he lost track of them. So, who knows, maybe they will surface again someday, but for the meantime we have it on authority, his authority, that he was good. Perhaps some have wondered at his last name, and yes, he was a descendant of Jean-Frédéric Oberlin, who was an 18th century Alsatian clergyman, for whom both the town Oberlin, Ohio, and Oberlin College itself were both named. But young Russell grew up in Akron, and at the age of fourteen his voice changed. At the time of that event, he found himself with not much voice at all. And this was so much the case with me as well once my voice changed. I didn't have any low notes, I didn't have any high notes. But unlike me, Russell was given the very intelligent advice to simply sing what felt comfortable to him. From 1948 to 1951, he attended the Juilliard School. During these years, he sang exclusively as a very light lyric tenor. Some of his post-graduation appearances at Juilliard has surfaced in recent years and have been published on YouTube, and I'm going to play you a very short example from a François Couperin, motet called Veni Sponsa Christi, or the Mote de Sainte Suzanne. This performance took place on the 6th of February 1953, and the harpsichordist Stoddard Lincoln leads the instrumental ensemble. This is just the very opening salvo of the piece.
1: Veni, veni, Sponsa Christi. Veni, veni, Then he bade, then come.
0: Everybody has a different opinion on what the countertenor voice actually is. And Russell Oberlin always contended that he had been a very light lyric tenor who had a freak upper extension to his voice, but that he never flipped into falsetto when he sang. Many years after he retired from singing, we spoke about these very matters, and I heard it from his own lips that this was the case. Now, you would think that if he were a lyric tenor, that he would have a stronger, lower range. I'm sure you heard even in the Cherry Tree Carol that E-flat was really the very, very bottom of his tenor range. But this is a question for which I'm not even going to posit an answer right now. I will say that my Most significant voice teacher, Joan Kaplan, and I settled on the term reinforced falsetto to describe the range in which I sang, but I have to say that for me... Finding the depth and body in my low voice was the key to finding my highest notes. And mind you, they didn't go that high. There are sopranisti out there who are popping out high C's and D's now. I don't know how they do it. More power to them. I want to offer you a contrast. I don't normally do this where I play one singer right after the other, singing the exact same repertoire, but I think this is instructional. There was another countertenor who came up in England just a few short years before Russell Oberlin appeared on the scene. His name, of course, is, and was, was Alfred Deller, He represents a very different kind of countertenor singing. One still hears more than the vestiges of it today. It's not a sound that I particularly like. It's very hooty. It doesn't have a lot of body. It doesn't have depth. But I do want to play something from Alfred Deller for you. This is him singing the Henry Purcell Ditty, Strike the Vial, from the verse anthem Come Ye Sons of Art. And this is Alfred Deller in a nineteen fifty-three (laughs) recording. Just so happens that in the exact same year, 1953, Russell Oberlin also recorded Strike the Vial. And I'm simply going to play his version for you as well. And I want you to hear that these are two very different kinds of production. For one thing, I think Russell's voice is much more settled, it's grounded and his coloratura is much more even, and he's also much less arch in the way that he inflects the text. I will say Deller's diction is fine, and there are a lot of people who really love this kind of singing, and again, my point is not to criticize him, but to highlight what I think made Russell Oberlin so very special. i oh. Another countertenor who appeared on the scene just shortly after Russell Oberlin, probably in the early 1960s, and his name was John Ferrante. It's hard to find much material about him online, but he's definitely most famous for his appearances with PDQ Bach the comedy creation of the musicologist and composer Peter Schickley. In these appearances, John Ferrante was always billed as a bargain countertenor, which sort of reveals the kind of humor that Schickley engages in as P.D.Q. Bach. Now, I have sung some P.D.Q. Bach, and it's an awful lot of fun, but it isn't easy. It isn't easy at all, because the writing really exploits some extremes of the vocal range. As an example of John Ferrante, and it's difficult to find examples of his singing, unfortunately, I'm going to play a little excerpt. From a live 1973 recording of the opera with the amusing title, Hensel and Gretel and Ted and Alice. And John Ferrante assumed numerous roles in this short piece, including the role of Gretel. And we're going to hear him sing Gretel's opening aria, Like a Lonely Pilgrim. timbre of his voice and his affable personality, Russell Oberlin found himself in frequent demand as a performer. One of the most important early associations he made was in the year 1953, when he was engaged by Noah Greenberg, an avocational musician, shall we say, to become one of the founding members of his early music ensemble, New York Pro Musica. The group was enormously successful, probably most so for their 1958 presentation of the play of Daniel, a 13th century mystery play that originated in Beauvais, France. The story of the genesis of this production is so interesting, and perhaps I will at some point do a little exegesis of the New York Promusica. At any rate, here is a key moment from the play of Daniel, or Ludus Danielis, as it's originally called, when, at the climax of the drama, an angel appears to announce the birth of Christ. And who is our angel but none other than the angelic Russell Oberlin? Production was an enormous success and led to that 1958 recording, as well as to State Department sponsored tours of Europe and to Russell Oberlin's burgeoning acclaim. While he was on tour in England with the play of Daniel, he received a summons. From Covent Garden, Benjamin Britten's opera, A Midsummer Night's Dream, was going to be produced there, and the newly appointed music director, George Schulte, had earmarked Russell Oberlin for the key role of Oberon in that opera. But, and Russell told me this story himself, Russell thought that it was a prankster, and so he didn't return the call. But, thank goodness, Schulte was persistent and tried again, and possibly even a third time, I can't remember. But finally, the connection was made, and Russell Oberlin was engaged to sing the role of Oberon in the initial production of Midsummer Night's Dream at Covent Garden. He also sang the role in Vancouver in the Canadian premiere of the piece, and with San Francisco Opera in the U.S. premiere of the piece. By marvelous happenstance, there is a live recording from the 11th of February, live from the stage of Covent Garden, and I'm going to play you an excerpt known to every single countertenor in the business, I Know a Bank. Interestingly, Alfred Deller had sung in the premiere of this piece at Aldborough the previous year, But Schulte had refused to engage Alfred Deller, and in fact went so far as to say that if Britain insisted that Deller sing the part, that the opera would simply not be produced at Covent Garden. It was Oberlin as Oberon or no opera. I'm one of those who feels that the right choice was made. this repertoire that we're hearing Russell Oberlin sing today are pieces that I sang myself, and so it's been a very emotional trip down memory lane for me this week. In 1959, Russell Oberlin recorded and released an album of Handel Arias with the conductor Thomas Dunn leading a pickup chamber orchestra and the harp supportist Albert Fuller providing the continual. Speaking of arias that were always part of my arsenal, here is a portion of Vivi Tiranno from Handel's Rodelinda.
1: Vivi Tiranno, Vivi Tirano, Tirano. scampato, in grotto. so Oh, <laughs>
0: Russell Oberlin, developed his voice to the extent that he could sing far beyond the normal range of a light lyric tenor. I would say, in fact... He'd probably be considered an haute contre today, one of those very high-lying tenors who could take on parts in operas by Lully and Rameau that would probably describe his voice type most accurately. Now, we've heard a lot of the big stuff. For the rest of the program, we're going to sample some of Oberlin's other Repertoire Way back from his early days studying at Juilliard, Russell Oberlin was a keen recitalist, and he enthusiastically sang such leader repertoire as would have been appropriate for a lyric tenor. In 1961, he did release an album on American Decca Records, with whom he frequently recorded, It was entitled, A Russell Oberlin Recital, and it included Lieder of Schumann and Wolf on the second side of the LP. I'm going to play for you now from Hugo Wolf's italienisches Liederbuch, Auch kleine Dinge, small things too can give us delight. Think of the rose that is so small and yet emits such a delectable fragrance.
1: Auch oh, kleine Dinge.
0: 50s and Early 60s, Russell Oberlin recorded 10 LPs of medieval and Renaissance music for the label Expérience Anonyme, which were reissued in the US on the Lyricord label. I'm going to play you short excerpts of a wide range of these records, by no means even a representative selection. But even so, I would say that the music that we're hearing today covers a range of Nearly a thousand years, which is definitely the widest scope for any episode I've done thus far. Actually, it's more like 900 years. I seem to always exaggerate. So let's go back, let's go way, way back to listen to a hymn by St. Godric. Four of whose hymns are the oldest notated musical settings in English. This one is a hymn to St. Mary the Virgin, and this is a recording from 1958. And in the background, we will hear the viol of Seymour Barab. Sim- was another of the musicians who was involved with the New York Pro Musica. And to musicians of my generation, of course, Seymour Barab is best remembered for his children's operas. I think there's a Little Red Riding Hood and probably a Jack and the Beanstalk. But he was a fine viol player. And we're going to hear him in the next number as well. And this is an excerpt from the Troubadour and Trouvert album that was recorded the prior year, 1957. These Troubadour songs tend to be very, very long pieces. So I'm playing you the opening in Chip it and the closing of one by a Trouvert named Daniel Arnaud. This is Chanson d'Hilmo sans plein et plein. next song is a selection from the Cantigas de Santa Maria by Alfonso the Wise, King of Castile. Apart from his royal duties, he composed a large set of texts and songs in honor of the Virgin Mary, in the Galician Portuguese language. Another example of medieval monody, but with a slightly different twist. Russell Oberlin recorded these in the year 1957 with the lutenist Joseph Iodone, who happens to have been the husband of a dear friend of mine, so I'm happy to present him to you. He was certainly the foremost American lutenist of his day. And we are hearing Cantiga number 205 from the recording that Russell Oberlin and Joseph Iodone did of the Cantigas de Santa Maria.
1: <laughs> Ifes, oh, Santa Maria, et te parades, oi, oh, rei des maravilha, muy grande etse tus seandes, que per oras son mostrada, foi ante muy entombrado. Oras son conti, abade, oi, oh, na virgen de grado, et qual vade, ma corella, o oh, que le e encomendado.
0: From a slightly later generation comes the English composer John Dunstable. Dunstable lived from approximately 1390 to 1453. Much of his work has not survived, but what there is is considered to be of the highest quality, musically speaking. This is a recording of his song Puisque M'Amour from one of the rarer Expérience Anonyme recordings. This one's from 1961, and we hear Oberlin accompanied by the organist Michael Brimer. This is a rare opportunity to hear Russell Oberlin singing in French, a language which he professed not to be terribly comfortable with, and yet, as I said earlier, the French repertoire over many different centuries. Would have suited him very well. We heard him in Couperin back in his post student days, and here he is singing the work of the English composer Dunstable in French. I need to say a word about Oberlin's diction. He was very dedicated to the supremacy of the word and his diction is always very clear unfortunately vis-a-vis his italian it seems like he had an aversion to the double consonant and so sometimes when we hear him singing in italian or even in german there are some approximations of pronunciation that make his work seem a little i refuse to use the word amateurish but less po than if he just had a little bit of coaching on his diction. (laughs) Listen to me. Oh, how presumptuous. But anyway, I must say, though, that his work in English... Is flawless, and he always said that he thought that more singers should work in their native language, primarily and especially when they were starting out. Now I have two examples for you of his supremacy in Renaissance English music. The first is a recording, again with Joseph Iodome, this from the year 1958, of the John Dowland lute song Weep You No More, Sad Fountain. I think that no one has sung lute songs better than Russell Oberlin did. And I must also say that I don't think that anyone has sung the music of Purcell better than Russell did. Oh, we... 1960, a recording of the madrigal, Though Amaryllis Dance in Green. And here Russell Oberlin is accompanied by Dennis Stevens and the Innominate
1: players. Oh,
0: I would also like to pay tribute today, brief though it may be, to one of Russell Oberlin's closest collaborators over many years of his career, and over a wide, wide range of music. That is the American Tenor. Charles Bressler, who was particularly celebrated for his performances of the Evangelist in the Bach Passions, as well as his expertise in contemporary music. Charles Bressler lived from 1926 to 1996. And he also was one of the founding singers in the New York Pro Musica. In fact, he sang the title role of Daniel in those performances of the play of Daniel that so changed the face of music history. I'm going to play, let's see, one, two, three, four different duets with Charles Bressler and Russell Oberlin. The first is a piece of English polyphony from the 13th century by an anonymous composer. And what would often happen is that there would be different layers that each voice or instrument would be using different thematic material, each strand layered on top of the other ones and all grounded by Acantus firmus often in an instrumental. sometimes from a piece of popular music. So this one is a three-voice piece of polyphony. The top voice is Opem Nobis. The second voice is Salve Toma. And the bass line is Pastor Jesus. And we hear on viol in the accompaniment, Seymour Barab, once again, as well as Martha Blackman. In the middle voice, we hear Charles Bressler. And on the top line, we hear Russell Oberlin. years before the play of Daniel, the New York Pro Musica also did a groundbreaking evening of Monteverdi music, and from the Ninth Book of Madrigals, I'm going to play the final section of the torna" duet. Here we hear Russell Oberlin and Charles Bressler once again, and a continual consisting of Sonia Monosov, Paul Maynard, and Martha Blackman, the recordings from 1956.
1: Più pur argento argent of Argento freja I'm
0: I think the most beautiful duet recording that Bressler and Oberlin did together was of John Blow's setting of the John Dryden Ode on the Death of Henry Purcell. This was an early recording right around the time that the New York Pro Musical was being formed. I believe this recording is from 1954. This is the very final section of that multi-part work, Ye Brethren of the Liar. In this excerpt, we also hear the recorder players, Bernard Cranus and Lanou Davenport.
1: Ye brethren, ye brethren, ye Brethren, ye Brethren of the Liar
0: 1955-1956 theater season, both Russell Oberlin and Charles Bressler appeared on Broadway in a production of Jean-Henri's The Lark as translated and adapted into English by Lillian Hellman. Bressler and Oberlin appeared performing incidental music by Leonard Bernstein. The play itself starred Julie Harris, Theodore Bichel, and Boris Karloff. Both singers went on to work further with Leonard Bernstein. Oberlin appeared singing Messiah with the New York Philharmonic and recording it as well, and both of the singers appeared in Bernstein's 19th performances and recording of the Bach Magnificat. It's a very, very romantic version of the piece, but I'm going to play for you a portion of the duet Et Misericordia as a last example of the beautiful way that these two voices blended together. I just want to remind you as well (laughs) that Russell Oberlin always had an incredibly dexterous voice. He could move like the wind, even though the tempi for many of the arias and pieces that he recorded were not taken at the lickety-split tempi that one might hear today. Frankly, this is all to my liking, but I'm going to play you the final movement of a Telemann cantata called Gott will Mensch und Sterblich werden. This recording from approximately 1961, and joining Russell Oberlin in an instrumental duet is the violinist Alexander Schneider. George Ricci and Douglas Williams are the continuum.
1: Emmanuel is Mm there Triumph, hallelujah The heaven won, the to him, the Himmel, the Immanuel is dead. Immanuel is dead. Immanuel is dead. Immanuel is da. Felsenstorm, the fetter half and drums are triumph, 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 hallelujah, hallelujah. Triumph, triumph, hallelujah, hallelujah. Triumph, triumph, hallelujah.
0: By the year 1966, Russell Oberlin's performing career was over. To most appearances, this looks like a very short career. But, as he pointed out in numerous interviews, he'd been singing for more than 30 years because he started at the age of six. And incidentally, and I find this so touching, he originally started singing as a way of combating a speech impediment. This is rather mind-boggling in the light of the next excerpt that I'm going to play for you. While Oberlin was singing Oberon in Midsummer Night's Dream, John Gielgud, who directed the production, suggested to Russell that he might consider performing William Walton's settings of Edith Sitwell's poems that were collected under the title Facade. These are pieces that are spoken over an instrumental accompaniment and often make positively virtuosic demands on the speakers. This recording with Oberlin and once again the conductor Thomas Dunn leading the instrumental ensemble also featured beloved actress Hermione Gingold reciting the Distaff songs. It's so amusing to me because their speaking voices lie in exactly the same range. But wait until you hear this performance of the tango Paso Doble. It's positively virtuosic. My head spins just listening to it.
2: When Don Pasquito arrived at the seaside, where the donkey's high tide braid, he saw the bandito Joe in a black cape. Slack shape, waved like the sea. Theta's sort of treaties, noting we to silver like the seal of a cheetah, cheetah's former ropes, notices that she will steal the like luggage like Babel before the League of Nations grew. So Joe put the luggage and the label in the pocket of Flow the Kangaroo. Through trees like rich hotels that bode of dreamless seas. fled she, carrying the load and going the road through the marine scene to the sea. Mosquito, the road is eloping. With your luggage, though heavy and large, you must follow and leave your moping. I to my guidance and charge When Don Pasquito Returned from the road's end Where vanilla-colored ladies ride From Sevilla his mantilled bride and young friend Were forgetting their mentor and guide For the lady and her friend from Le Touquet in the very shady trees upon the sand were plucking a white satin bouquet of foam while the sand's brassy band blared in the wind the dumb mosquito hid where the leaves drip with sweet, But a word stung him like a mosquito for what they hear they repeat.
0: In various interviews that I found with Russell, he says that as his engagements increased and became higher profile, that he found himself singing more on his vocal capital rather than his principal. This was something of which he was aware and was not at all happy. Two years before he stopped singing, he suffered from a serious bout of hepatitis that left him feeling... Further compromised in terms of his vocal and physical health. He took a year off, and during that time, he was offered the possibility of teaching at Hunter College. He never taught voice at Hunter, but instead he led a collegium and taught courses on music history and vocal literature, among other things. It appears that his family was comfortable, and he never was concerned about how he was going to support himself via his singing. It's funny, when I invited him to a concert that I was giving, I found his address in the phone book. He lived in a townhouse in the West Village, and I simply addressed a postcard to him, and he showed up at my concert. I couldn't have been more delighted, and as I said, he was very kind and very generous and really a wonderful, wonderful gentleman, and I treasure those memories of the time that I spent with him, however limited it might have been in the grand scheme of things. Russell Oberlin died on the 25th of November 2016 at the age of 88 In my book, his status as the greatest countertenor that ever lived stands firm, and in spite of the wonderful singers that are out there today, I don't think his position will ever seriously be challenged. And the other thing that we really must acknowledge is that if it weren't for him, I don't think we'd be seeing this plethora of fine countertenors in the world of opera today. It's time to wind down the episode today, my dear ones, and I have two closing numbers, both of them in English. First is William Byrd's Lullaby, My Sweet Little Darling, the recordings from 1960.
1: My sweet little
0: I hope you've enjoyed this introduction to a countertenor who is a shining example to all musicians, all singers, all lovers of music, and all countertenors. I always had his sound in my head as my vocal ideal. I'm not saying I ever came close to achieving that, but his artistry left a profound impact on me. And now, because... As I said earlier, there was simply no greater singer of the music of Henry Purcell ever. I have that most glorious number from the Harmonia Sacra, an evening hymn on a ground, also known by the title of the poem, Now that the sun hath veiled his light. Here is Russell Oberlin, accompanied once more by Paul Maynard and Seymour Barab.
1: Now, now that the
0: friends keep the song in your hearts and daniel gundlach